Hi, how are you, Sunak? Thank you for making it. Good, how are you doing? I'm good too, thank you. Um, let's wait like a few more minutes um, to let people arrive and um, and then I'll introduce you and then we'll start. Thank you. Sounds good, thank you. Okay, um, yeah, we can slowly start and then we can always uh, refresh the room. Um, so, hi Abyss, how are you doing? Hey Kat, uh, hi Solnay. Hi. Okay, so uh, welcome everyone um, to the Science Society Club today. Uh, we have our guest speaker, um, who um, Sunak Mohanta, who will uh, talk about his research and um, Dr. Salman's lab. And um, yeah, it's a really interesting study. And I, I think um, we will all learn a lot. But let me first introduce you a little bit. Um, so, um, uh, Sunak, he is, um, as I said, um, a graduate student in the Department of Psychology in the Salman Lab. 
and um, he is interested in predictive coding and how subcortical activity helps us integrate information from different modalities as well as perform sensory motor transformations. He uses neuroimaging and multi-site electrophysiology in non-human primates and human subjects. And um, yeah, he published, like he's a PhD student, but he has so many uh, really great publications um, in high impact journals. So I uh, congratulations to that. And um, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, welcome to our club. So thank you. The stage is yours. Thank you, Katerina. Um, uh, thank you for the invitation also. So the story I'm going to tell today is about how we make predictions, predictions about environment around us or predictions about what is going to happen next. So as you, um, as you can think of it, it is something we do quite uh, regularly. Um, every day while walking around, but as neuroscientists, um, it's it has been quite overlooked too. Also, so because traditionally we have um, interpreted brain's processing strategy as pretty much bottom up, so building from the basics, taking small chunks of information and then processing them separately, and then finally joining them together to build a bigger concept. So let me give you an example so that it's easier to understand. If I show you a picture of the car in this framework, um, what your brain will be doing is probably taking first the sub parts. So the wheels, the steering, the seats, processing them separately. And then in the next step, putting them all together to create um, perception of a car and the brain will be doing this each time from scratch whenever you see a car but if we think more about this it seems quite inefficient right so even if I have seen a car before it really doesn't matter because even after that when I am I'm given a second uh, for a second time I've, I'm shown a car it will start processing from the scratch um, but what I really want to do if I think about a more efficient strategy is that the moment I see a hint of four wheels, maybe a bit of the steering, I should bring back my previous experience of how a car looks like and then very quickly have a quick perception of, oh, this is, this is a car. So... In last decade or so, there has been some change among the cognitive neuroscientists about how perception happens. And a recent idea called predictive coding, though recent in the uh, history of neuroscience, but actually if we look back, it is quite rooted in 19th century Western philosophy and also in certain schools of Indian philosophy. So this framework has actually flipped this idea of perception on its head. And instead of processing every bit of information as if it's new and as if it has never seen it before, 
scientists have suggested that our brain actually builds a model of the world around us and then what it does it it checks every incoming information against that model so if 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 the incoming new information is matching the model it just well and good it just keeps the model as it is but otherwise um, if there is a mismatch between the model and the new information it would incorporate those mismatches to update the new model so that it better represents the world so even if we start with a very naive model of the world and then in multiple iterations if i if it can update and incorporate the mismatches at the end we'll have a model that correctly represents the world around us so let me elaborate with another example so we all have this model of a model of our kitchen in our brain right so we know where the toaster is where the burners are uh, how does the kitchen top look like and uh, and we know where say i'm a coffee addict so i know where i keep my coffee mug so for say I, one morning i just walk into my kitchen just looking for a coffee mug and i know that i have kept it last time or my first prediction or anticipation is that it is next to the toaster but when i look for it it's it's not there there is this mismatch between where my existing model of my kitchen predicted the coffee mug to be and where the, the where i try to find it and it's not there and then i look around and it's somewhere else i had moved it probably but then i use this new mismatch information to really update the existing model of my kitchen so that in the next iteration in next morning when i walk into the kitchen i exactly know where the coffee mug is right so that the new model replicates the correct map of the uh, of the kitchen so in summary what the brain is doing in this framework is it has a three step procedure it constantly first makes a prediction and uh, then it checks uh, then then it checks uh, checks if the prediction and the whatever my surrounding is matches or not and if it doesn't match then it updates and does this over and over again when we are moving around in our daily lives so building on that premise what we wanted to do in this study is test do have, have two aims specifically first is if if this kind of predictive processing is really true water how does it help us how does it make our decision making more efficient and the number two is if it is really true again but if it is really true what brain signals exactly correlate or replicate um, reflect this kind of processing what brain signals what brain connections so the experiment we designed is quite straightforward we designed a very boring computer video game and what the participants have to do was 
tell us that if a sound and an image came from the same pair or they are from a different pair. So for example, if I show you, if I, if I present you um, sound of a cat meowing and then followed by that an image of a cat, um, you will, because they're associated, you will report that, okay, they are paired. On the other hand, instead of a cat's picture, if it was a dog's picture, then because it's uh, it's they are not associated it's a different association right so in that case you will report that okay they are not paired so conceptually our our boring video game was exactly like this and um, the only difference we had was that first we had three sounds and each sound was paired to an image so three pairs of sound and images. And um, also the other critical thing was the all the sounds and all the images were novel. So this is not something that we encounter in daily life. So the sounds were nonsense English words and the images looked like animals, but they were not really any pictures of animals. And we taught the participants this, this um, this, this association, so the associations between each sound and each image. And then once they learned the associations, what we did is skew the predictive qualities of the sounds. So, um, so what we made is we made certain sounds highly predictive of its paired image. So for example, when you say hear sound one, you will see its paired image for 85% of the times. So very highly predictive. And for another sound, what we did is we made it moderately predictive. So when you hear, say, sound two, you will see its paired image for 50% of the time. And the remaining sound was, um, not predictive at all. So when you hear the third sound, you can see any of the images. Um, and the participants used a small controller to respond. They had two buttons. And if what they were doing while playing the game was if they think the sound and the image or the picture come from the same pair, they press one button. And if it's not paired, uh, they press the other button. And we recorded all these button presses, how quickly they respond, when they respond, if they're getting a correct response or error, all these behavioral um, effects we recorded. The other thing we recorded was the brain signals. So they had a EEG cap on. It's a, it's a non-invasive way to record electrical signals in the brain. So they simply wear a baseball hat or a cricket hat if we're depending on where you're listening from. And this ha hat has multiple electrodes beneath it. And what it does is it's, it's a non-invasive procedure. So it, it just sits on your head and then it records the different brain signals from your brain. So moving on to what we found, 
was that even though that the manipulation we did with the predictability was unaware to the participants, they showed a very interesting behavioral trend. So when they were presented with a highly predictive sound, they were fastest to tell us if the picture really matched with the sound. And they got slower as the predictive value of the sound dropped. So generating slowest response when they, they, they were presented with the least predictive sound cue. And it's a very clear um, behavioral trend. And this was shown in the how, how this, this we, we can see in the reaction time measures, which is how fast they respond. It's a very clear behavioral trend. And in the next step, we really wanted to look at if there are any brain signals that correlate with this behavioral effect. And look, simply looking at the electrical signals recorded from the brain. And we found that when participants were presented with a highly predictive sound, the activity of the frontal part of the brain would increase and then it would send the signal back to the posterior back of the brain, activating brain cells that represent the anticipated image. So when you hear a sound, uh, it will send the signal back to the posterior part of the brain, activating the representation of the paired image to it. And what is interesting here is that this happens just after the sound is presented and even before the image is presented. So as if it is anticipating the paired image, our brain is anticipating the paired image. So it's like a priming signal that the frontal part of the brain sends to the posterior part of the brain, which has representation of the paired image. And uh, then eventually when the image is presented to them because the representations are already pre-activated, they generate a speedier response as if you're like already little prepared. And then whenever you see the image presented, you are quicker to respond. So all of this, all of these behavioral effects, along with the electrical signals recorded from the change uh, from the brain, all of this just changed when we administered ketamine. And to just give a flavor of the experiment, what we were doing and some context to really understand what was going on. So the participants come into lab and first they play this video game once without any drug on board. And then once that is done, they play the video game once more with the ketamine on board. And this is um, very minute dose of ketamine, so sub-anesthetic dose. And sub, all the participants are completely awake and aware of their surroundings on, of themselves. So very tiny dose of ketamine. And as I was saying, ketamine blocked every single, every single effect that we saw before. So I would go into the details of what exactly ketamine was doing, but you must be wondering why, what is, what is so special about ketamine? 
and like what is the deal here so the answer actually lies in the nature of the connections between different brain areas each brain cell called neurons actually communicate by passing this chemical signals across tiny gaps between neighboring cells and each type of signal has a transmitter and a receptor and what ketamine does is, is it interferes with one specific communication channel by blocking a certain kind of receptor called NMDA receptors and this recept this these receptors are actually common on the neurons that that connect um, the frontal part of the brain to the posterior part so the pathways that are connecting these two areas that's where these receptors are found in abundance and so when we are administering ketamine what it is doing possibly is it is blocking this pathway so the frontal part of the brain has no way to really send these priming signals to the posterior part of the brain which has representations of the image so moving on to what actually happened under ketamine was that it generated this very noisy disorganized activity in the frontal part of the brain and then when we looked at the connections between the frontal part of uh, frontal part of the brain and the posterior part of the brain the those connections relatively stayed quiet so there was very little communication going on between the frontal part and the posterior part of the brain and then when you looked at the behavioral measures how like how quickly are participants responding when they are under ketamine there was another very surprising finding is that all the reaction times that is how quickly they respond how quickly they press the button were stretched out they were slower actually and there was no difference between any between the three sounds so the participants just responded equally equally fast to all the three different sounds it seems like even though there is this predictive nature in our video game that participants have benefited from before um, right now under ketamine there is there is no priming signal that can really prepare them to make a faster response in for certain sounds so that priming signal is completely lost so that that is what we found when it was when participants were playing the game under 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 ketamine but to there there is like one small caveat to this is that we wondered if this effects are general anesthesia effects and the hypothesis was that maybe if we administer any kind of anesthesia this is going to happen and to really look into this and see if this is the case what we did is we asked the participants to come back for another day and the series of experiments were exactly same so they come in they play the game once without the drug and 
then again with another dr with, a, with with drugs on board but this time instead of getting get, uh, giving ketamine we gave them a different anesthetic called dexmedetomidine and the difference is that this new drug new anesthetic doesn't act on those receptors that i was talking about that connect the frontal areas to the back of the brain and though it has a different mechanism though this new drug has a different mechanism of anesthetics but it kind of creates a similar anesthesia state so um, but also this was used on a sub anesthetic dose state where um, participants were still awake and aware and can do and can play the video game quite efficiently and the idea was that there are two possibilities right one participants can show exactly same effects like ketamine if that every possible effects are blocked there is no behavioral there is a no behavioral difference between the three sounds or it can be that all the processes are intact um, under dexmedetomidine compared to ketamine um, so wh what we found was that when we have participants under playing the game under dexmedetomidine this new drug new anesthetic all all the behavioral trends the brain signals everything was intact it was as it is it was before the drug was on board so whatever effects we were seeing it was very specific to ketamine and that particular receptors manipulation and um, finally what is uh, quite interesting here and i'll be a little bit speculative here because we didn't really test this but there are some ideas in the field where um, where researchers have suggested that poor predictions are actually uh, poor predictions are symptoms of depression and schizophrenia so you have depressed patients erroneously predict that the worst can happen to them and ketamine has been a uh, has been shown to relieve depression like symptoms in clinical trials it has it it acts very quickly it has a much long term effect so and one of the idea is that maybe what ketamine does it it releases this it releases the depressed uh, patients from this associations with negative predictions so which is quite in line with what we saw that since we found that when we have when we administer ketamine participants cannot really use the existing predictions around your system uh, uh, in in that computer video game and so maybe this is how ketamine works maybe what happens is that when you administer ketamine they are released from those negative associations and then that is how you can alleviate from the symptoms of depression and if you are wondering if um what is if if what is the future direction of this study so we have collaborators here at university of wisconsin madison and they have taken up this video game and 
they have they have created a long term study so they will they have participants coming in who um who are going through a a, a a clinical trial kind of and what they're recording is where whether the whether the when they when when this new when these participants play this uh, computer game whether their behavioral trends change before and after treatment and they're also recording brain signals to see if those brain signals correlate with the behavioral trends so um yeah that that is basically what i had to talk about today so and thank you for listening to me and i'll be happy to take any questions if you have yeah thank you so much this is such an interesting study it's really fascinating uh, to me and since i never did human studies i'm always fascinated about really good um human studies and so thank you for sharing and yeah please flash your mics if you have any questions go ahead abyss hi sonak um yeah this is a really interesting study and i think they probably would shed some light on um sort of like this predictive association as you just mentioned with some of the chronic mental um mental issues like depression i do have a couple of questions um so the first one is that do you know or is there like a floating idea as to how an mda is specifically targeted as um um for this specific case and uh, the reason why i'm asking this is that um uh, like we know that an mda it's actually also involved in a very co complex uh, uh process like for example expediting you know ampa receptors expression and um sort of increasing the intracellular uh camp kinase so is there um sort of a way to kind of target those as opposed to like the NMDA uh, receptor using ketamine to essentially weed out like which mechanism is actually possible? That's my first question. The other one is, uh, do you think it's kind of, this kind of results can be replicated using, um, um, you know, interventions that do not actually involve uh, some kind of drug administration. And by that, I mean, there are uh, non-invasive techniques like, for example, transmagnetic stimulation that you can actually target uh, with precision as to which part of the brain that you want to um, essentially silence for um, um, like in simpler terms. So is there a way for you, for your research group to kind of target those parts without using any kind of drug administration to see if the effect still holds um, using non-invasive non techniques? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, those are really great questions. Thank you. So the first one, um, so we do the re reason with we are confident about it is targeting NMDA is because the dose there is a dose dependency on which receptor it is gonna work on and um, we had we had um, we had a UW anesthetist and he moved to Sydney right now but um, so the dose we targeted from literature um, we have found that mostly it is cited to act on NMDA the AMPA receptor 
when it acts on that it is at much higher dose and the hcn1 that is one another possibility how ketamine can work and that was controlled using dexmedetomidin because the other drug that i was talking about because dexmedetomidin also works on hcn1 receptor channels um the second one is um a great question yeah because one uh, one of our co-authors um he has yeah he has he has moved to sydney now but he's actually trying to uh, do this experiment using tms where looking at if he can if his lab can really perturb this frontal activations like ketamine does using tms so um, yeah there are there might be some non invasive ways to do it but yeah it still needs standardization and probably would need some time before it before we have a publication worthy something yeah thank you um yeah eric uh, nikita dennis please go ahead if you have a question i'm still taking it all in so if anyone else has questions go for it um yeah i think this study is also um while people are still you know thinking um i think the study is also interesting from like a basic more memory formation uh standpoint of view mm, i really that's why i really like the study where this priming um is um is interrupted and this um and is really shown how brain regions work together in this priming and prediction um so i think um yeah i really like that um, and um what i think it's interesting you know there are other studies that try to also address why ketamine is working so well and so fast and so prolonged um but i think this is the only really functional related study um as far as i know until now i saw like plasticity in animal model changes that were studied but i think yours is the only study that goes really into a functional uh, human study is that is that correct yeah so we when we were started to look at this we were yeah actually quite <laughs> so the problem has been beat around you know but not completely like one story telling the complete picture so yeah so that was kind of the motive of designing this this ta task was actually designed for non human primates but um happened to this project this happened on the side so um yeah that was also our goal because we couldn't find something that was that was telling the complete picture like what is missing what is happening when prediction is happening and another problem we faced were uh, thought of while we were designing is that a lot of the studies use auditory oddball which is um for just to, it's like a train of sounds and it 
it has some deviation so it can be low frequency low frequency low frequency then all of a sudden surprise you with a high frequency sound um, a lot of a lot of studies in predictive processing as well as how ketamine disrupts predictive processing is involving that kind of paradigm like a oddball paradigm and what it what those oddball paradigm does is that it assumes prediction so you when you are analyzing a processing of each sound you are just analyzing the mismatch you don't know what happened during that prediction period and so it becomes harder to really separate out a neural element of prediction and secondly there is no behavioral proxy or correlate so yeah so the like we didn't find like one single task and study that completely tells the picture that is uh, that is also our motivation so what um are you planning so this was um done in healthy adults right so are you planning to to um, do next studies uh, in patients with depression that are naive, I guess, um, and see um, if the if the mechanisms or if the results that are shown are similar. I think that would be interesting to see. Yeah. So I I I probably won't analyze the data, but we have. Um, we have a group here at the Psychedelic Research Center and they have a study with the same uh, task, same video game, um, but not exactly in ketamine. They are using psilocybin and what they have is, um, the plan is to have patients come in, play the game and see how the behavioral trends look. Then also look how the fMRI signals look, so the uh, brain activity, and then um, track them throughout their treatment and see if the behavioral trend changes or the brain signal changes. So the idea is maybe when they're depressed, the, they won't be able to use the predictive information in the task, in the game. And so the reaction times, how fast they respond are all equal across the three sounds and as they slowly get better they start to show the behavioral trends that we are seeing in healthy adults so that is right now the goal so we just started this new study so maybe yeah i don't know when but sometime in the future we definitely will have something out yeah that is interesting but so I don't know, but um, so for the ketamine effect, in general, it doesn't really matter what type of priming um, is happening, right? Um, it's just priming in general um, is decreased um, with ketamine. And um, the theory is that, you know, since people um, with depression have um a more um negative prediction that's why the prediction that's why the depressive um antidepressant 
um, effect come uh, comes in, right? Yeah. So um, that is um, so the so we we really cannot pin like in our study we couldn't really pinpoint where it is breaking down. So there are two possibilities, right? One is whether uh, ketamine when we introduce ketamine it is it is creating this negative predictions in in the frontal cortex and then there is also this effect where it really cannot mm, talk back to the posterior part of the brain and um, what in our study we couldn't tease apart is who is driving like which is causal here like is it because the frontal cortex is all messed up when i when i'm giving ketamine that the, that the talk communication is breaking down that is probably the most possible explanation but it's not very uh, we we really didn't look at that that cleanly so um so the prime as you were saying the priming signal breaks down that is true that i agree yeah but yeah, we couldn't really pinpoint of which of the two mechanisms is driving it. Yeah, interesting. Um, because in my like in my ideas I had before giving ketamine or any of these drugs was to basically expose. Let's say you would do this with. Mm, so do you let me ask first do you think that this would also be a good um a therapy for people with anxiety and ptsd hmm. uh, i don't have a strong opinion here but when i think more of about this it's i what i think can be done with this um is it is like um their predictions or whatever they're thinking about the world are stuck in what one place that is creating negative associations it's like a solidified ice cube and then if you give ketamine it kind of melts everything and then maybe using cognitive behavioral therapy you can really take the you know the liquid to another another area in the i don't know in the realm and solidify it there where you can make more positive predictions about the world so uh, but yeah this is all very hand wavy this is uh, this might not have any scientific basis, but just just some thoughts. Yeah, just go ahead. But um, let me just yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's what I also um, always thought. And then, so my idea, or probably a lot of people's ideas, that um, if you would basically expose in a safe environment people, let's say with PTSD or phobia or so. Um, and have ketamine at the same time or any of these other drugs that have similar effects. Um, yeah, I, I thought that would maybe, um, yeah, would maybe help to basically give the brain a chance to rewire, but, um, 
but based on your based on your research you don't really have to do the exposure part i think i think you can just you know use it in general um i don't know i'm i'm not sure but based on your research i kind of changed my mind to maybe you don't need to use um exposure at the same time you can just go ahead and and give ketamine and it should um you know all predictions should be disrupted so mostly the negative ones i would say and, and people with ptsd yeah but um, that would exposing them to ketamine would bring it to baseline probably but how to make sure that they don't fall back there again when they recover from the dose of ketamine so that's where i kind of i don't know what's what's a good uh, yeah how to better guide them to a more positive predicting world so that's where i was thinking maybe something like behavioral therapy and now it's in in a more malleable state and now you can use more reinforcement to really guide this to somewhere where it is going to stay yeah thank you abis go ahead uh, i mean uh, thanks guy i was going to probably chime in um i think like there's probably a floated idea that um ketamine and psilocybin might be kind of ways to kind of disrupt the default mode network which i believe is sort of the connection between the the medial prefrontal cortex and uh sort of like the posterior cingulate cortex and the angular gyrus um so I don't know what the cellular mechanism at this at this point but um I believe like probably the 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 outwardly look of people that are mired in like depression any any other kind of like PTSD or or probably like suicidal thoughts or um kind of looped into this this default mode network and uh, the whole theory is if we kick them out they will probably start to see the world differently and i think sonak can probably correct me on this but this is the impression that i had when i first saw that psilocybin and uh, ketamine can be applied um i mean depending on the dose obviously but um with with the predetermined dosage that they can be um used to treat depression and other mental illnesses yeah i'm, I'm not very familiar uh with the literature here but yeah that seems seems uh, like a possible explanation that just taking them out of that negative association they had had about the world yeah but i don't know how much default mode so and my my opinion or whatever i'm saying is very much in in the context of my of the task or the game game i designed because the me the task incorporates lateral prefrontal cortex for the because of whatever anatomical connections are known between these areas it it is most likely incorporating um lateral prefrontal cortex and then in auditory parabolic areas and superior temporal sulcus the face facials because i had this face like shapes so which are not part of default mode network so um in 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 the context of my task i'm saying so maybe i don't know what what will 
I, I don't know if default mode network is really contributing in any way here, but in a broader context, maybe that is true. And also, I'm I'm not an expert in this area, so that <laughs> that should be also taken into consideration. Um, yeah, we have a few new people on stage. Um, Dennis and uh, AO and Ripley, please go ahead um, if you have questions. Uh, I had a question and a comment. I will do the comment just very briefly. Um, depression and depression also as part of other things like bipolar 2 and bipolar 1 are a collection of symptoms, not a disease. Not all of them are due to negative uh, perceptions causing depression. So the, 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 the end game solutions are going to be very varied. So that is one route, but it, it's uh, being able to divide things up so that uh, looking at uh, inflammation versus uh, <laughs> neuroplasticity and depressive thoughts and interrupting that and so many different things is a part of it. Uh, uh, and my question is, um, one of the things that is uh, often mentioned with ketamine in humans is the uh, NDMA uh, and glutamine uh, effects. Uh, sorry, glutamate, and uh, something that is seen really strongly in animal models, at least, is uh, uh, neurogenesis and uh, increased spine formation. So I was curious uh, if you had any information about uh, uh, whether the uh, new anesthesia you are experimenting with also has some uh, similar neurogenesis and spine effects in uh, at least mice models. Yeah, I am not really, uh, I know ket uh, that ketamine literature from some, I have heard about the works from some of the folks here in campus, but yeah, it's we haven't really um, investigated that, so I don't know if it if something like that is happening or there is if it is dose dependent that also makes it a little complicated because um, yeah we used a dose that was quite quite low and um, so so I, I I don't have a concrete answer for your question. Um, yeah, uh, AO, do you want to yeah. yeah, go ahead? Um, I just have a quick question. So, um, I keep re rephrasing this in my head. Hang on. Uh, if, is this more of like an investigative study that under the theory, um, that a certain type of depression and um, maybe some aspects are 
some people's schizophrenia is caused by poor prediction modeling and the ketamine is more trying to recognize the um, channels involved with prediction modeling and then through association we can say that perhaps reworking those predictive channels could help with uh, depression um, and and other like treatments and so because when you recommend behavioral cognitive therapy um, like the re re repetitive actions of um, altering your thought process is is like a more long-term solution as you're saying so my I, the question is um, is this more of an investigative study to the channels using ketamine as um, sort of like the uh, marker or is this a, a more of a study to see that ketamine would be in even in low doses uh, a type of medication for this kind of depression um, yeah so we um, the the idea of depression it's um, kind of um, it, we didn't really design the study to study um, to look into depression and this how we how ketamine can really help in that symptoms but the findings of the study um, when we tried to interpret it in a more you know broader aspect like how this what what does it tell extra that's when um, looking at the current literature we thought maybe this is how it fits in so so the connection between our study and 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 maybe ketamine helping depression in certain in this way is in in that context that we were trying to fit our findings and into the current uh, ideas and literature that's that's in the field so yeah we it was not really um, like we didn't really design it to study that so it wasn't it wasn't designed to study ketamine as a medication. It was designed, or it wasn't designed to study um, depression. It was just designed to study planning. And then um, using the literature in the field, you were able to say that this could be a possible thing to study later? Yeah, yeah. So as I was saying, some, some collaborators here have picked up on that and are trying to follow up on that study or follow up on how um, this kind of predictive processing can be altered. So, yeah, so that is that, that you're correct. Yeah, that was, that is the case. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. Just to give people a short, um, very short summary, um, for people that arrived later. Um, Sunak, he's in um, um, someone's lab and um, he did a study with primates and humans and basically um, he studied how um, different brain areas um, during um, gaming, like during playing games, um, uh, make predictions and um, then he gave a low dose or um, 
doctor gave low dose of ketamine and they saw that um, these prediction abilities basically um, were downregulated and um, this was really interesting and not seen before and then they tested if it's just a general anesthesia effect uh, but it's not it's quite um, specific to ketamine and then um, yeah the something is this that these receptors that ketamine uh, target NMDA receptors are involved and they they interrupt this communication in the brain that enables the brain to make predictions and the idea is that then if um, predictions basically are disrupted this could be the way ketamine is helping currently people with um, depression disorders is um, that basically this um, negative prediction um, bias basically gets disrupted um, by ketamine yeah so um, just to give a short summary and if anyone in the audience or so has uh, another question We'll go maybe around um, 10 more minutes. And um, if that's okay with you, so like I just said 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, please go ahead and ask. Um, if not, we'll just, um, we'll just keep chatting up here. Um, yeah, if if nobody else um, has a question, uh, I I think it was quite interesting that um, that other anesthesias didn't have the same effect because I I thought that uh, when brains are basically under anesthesia that um, that basically this is exactly what happens uh, right the that basically the communication between different brain areas is uh, restricted or gone and, and that's why we are basically unconscious so um, so you and your explanation was really that um, the um, the receptors ketamine target right um, is that right yeah that, that's um, so when we use that other drug dexmedetomidin it's a mouthful of name but um, they were actually more sleepy compared to ketamine but they were doing the task using those predictive cues whereas under ketamine even though they were more awake and aware um, in physiological parameters like pupil movement heart rate, etc. They were still unable to use any of those predictive cues. So, yeah, um, like it's hard to explain the effects from anesthesia, just simple general anesthesia standpoint. Yeah, that, that, that's very impressive in your study. Um, and um, how long were those effects? Um, did you, how, how long after did you um, test after the ketamine exposure so yeah that uh, so that depended on the participants and it was around three to four hours after we turn off the drug they will be completely 
out of any effects of ketamine other that's when we'll redo the test again okay so um are you planning to do maybe to retest uh, maybe a week later or like a month i think the ketamine uh, treatments are around a few weeks to like um the frequency to up to a month i think if i'm not mistaken so are you planning on uh, doing a more long-term test um, after? Uh, right now, probably not. Um, yeah, we our anesthetist moved to uh, Sydney, so we don't have a lab to run these experiments anymore. But yeah, right now we don't have any plans with it, uh, but we have some plans with the psilocybin study. Uh, I thought of uh, another question. I think that it is uh, really fascinating that you chose to use uh, such low doses and got such interesting results. Um, I was wondering how your dosing compared with a uh, similar, uh, with uh, treatment levels of ketamine in the short term and if you know them in the long term because uh, there are people that uh, receive uh, intravenous uh, ketamine monthly as a maintenance. Yeah, so we uh, looked at that and ours is at least half if not less than the normal clinical doses of ketamine for treating depression. So uh, very low and we titrated it because um, so we, ha we were tracking the plasma con concentration as this whole experiment was going on and, um, and we made, like, because they had to do the task, we had to make sure they have, um, they are awake and aware and they have no nystagmus so their eyes are moving properly. So uh, keeping in all those minds, all those things in mind, we had to try trade the dose, which ended up being almost at at least half of the normal doses for treatment. Okay, thanks. Yeah, so uh, I, I was expecting more of a, an order of magnitude from the way you were talking about a tenth, but, but still, yes, uh, interesting to get the effects on a lower dose. Um, let's see. I had a further question, but I forgot it. So maybe someone else has one. Yeah, I would like, so, um, you know, it would be also interesting to compare um, to emotional um, cues if, um, if the effect is similar or not. Um, I think that would be interesting if there's a difference to positive versus negative emotion. But um, yeah, maybe even, you know, with other uh, hallucinogens, um, it would be interesting, you know, if you can read. So are you planning to basically repeat the study? And um, uh, yeah, are you planning to repeat the same thing just with... Um, hallucinogen and then I think it would be interesting to um, 
do like negative charged emotions versus positive uh, if if the priming basically is also disrupted or if there's a difference between those two i think that would be really interesting yeah that that is that are really good suggestions um we we don't have planned to do that with emotional regulation but um, we have plans to replicate this in non-human primates so same task same everything same just uh, looking at more circuit level uh, with invasive recordings that um, what is breaking down or what is how is the communication happening which brain areas are contributing and we also um, record from electrocorticographic patients so um, medicinally non-treatable epileptic patients they volunteer sometimes to um, do these research studies so we also have this so it's like a same task across multiple species and multiple techniques so right now those two are probably the priorities and um, but we haven't really thought about yeah that's a good point about re emotional regulation so yeah we haven't thought about it but I, that's these are very good suggestions yeah, you know, we, I, I don't know, at least in animal models, you know, I did um, my PhD in fear memory and in, in, in rats and mice and Joseph Ledoux's lab. And um, usually the, the fear, at least the fear-related ones, can in subjects, like even in, in rats and so on, there are individual differences, but become quite unflexible and also habitual avoidance of like a threat can become very, um, like is very unflexible. So it would be interesting to see like different, like to see differences in this type of memories uh, and memory priming, um, you know, if, if it can disrupt anything or it, it clinically, you know, translationally, it would be very interesting and um and very important maybe so would be really cool and um yeah thank you yeah that is true actually now if i am thinking more about it it it, it has a lot of translational value i agree yeah like especially habitual avoidance i don't know also for getting grants and stuff it's like pretty good um to get grants because it has like implications for addiction for you know compulsion for all kinds of stuff that is you know problematic to address because but yeah it would be also from a basic science uh, point of view to to see differences in these memories and maybe there are different mechanisms involved that maybe ketamine can disrupt or maybe not and why it would be interesting to see so it's very cool. Your your study opens up a lot of new questions and ways to go. I think. Yeah, yeah. There are some ideas that hippocampus probably contributes. So once they learn the associations, like how is the frontal cortex uh, bringing them into this 
there are like two steps right first you need the associations and then you have to overlay the probabilities on top of it and maybe prefrontal cortex is doing the probabilities but how is they need to bring the memories from somewhere and um, some somewhere there probably all these different contributions of memory come into play and hippocampus and say entorhinal subiculum all this uh, and this have connections with prefrontal cortex at least in uh, monkeys that I know of um, and so there are some one one there is one paper on it but there are some ideas so one cool thing about um, recording from electrocardiographic patients is that because we get a lot of medial temporal lobe epilepsy um, patients they have these electrodes in all those medial temporal lobe areas hippocampus amygdala um, some entorhinal electrodes too but a lot of hippocampus and amygdala so we we are looking into it but we won't get a chance to really you know perturb the system with ketamine but we'll have probably a more mechanistic view of how is this different subsystem say the memory system or the more frontal networks contributing and maybe how i don't know thalamus is uh, really manipulating you know like a um, like a ringmaster, like <laughs> taking information from one area, put uh, connecting it to another. So, yeah, it is still up in like it is. We are still uh, collecting data. So, yeah. So, uh, why I'm saying this, you know, um, my uh, PhD supervisor, um, Professor Joseph Ledoux, he wrote a whole article and basically a book about it. Why? We didn't make any progress in um, addressing like anxiety and disorders and PTSD and so on is because in the animal models we use um, that are have basically uh, weaker prefrontal cortex and so on like it has a less weight on the system compared to humans um, and uh, because we did all these studies on um, animals, uh, in animals, uh, the drugs we discovered for it uh, work pretty well, but they don't really address, uh, they don't work well in humans. They kind of suppress like the whole activity of a human, but really anxiety, uh, is really not gone because he says um, the weight is for sure bigger and, and higher uh, cognition areas in humans, especially prefrontal cortex and so on. So actually, his lab and um, and uh, colleagues of mine are, you know, more and more focusing even in animal models on a prefrontal cortex now and so on. So that's why I think it it would be really interesting and important to address this. Like <laughs> Professor Joseph, he wrote like a whole article that people were upset, but he might be right that, um, you know, we focused on the amygdala and, and, and all these um, older 
brain regions um, too much because we, in the animal models we use, they just have such a big weight, but it's not really working for treating humans. So I think that's why your work is really important. And um, yeah, congratulations. And um, yeah, please keep updating us with your research. And yeah, I wish you all the best for your PhD dissertation. I know you will do great. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. It was uh, nice talking here. Yeah. Abyss, go ahead. I was just going to say um, thank you for your, taking your time to um, share your research. And I hope um, you'll join us soon with um, even better results, like a more interesting really interesting uh, results as well. So yeah, just wanted to mention that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, come back. We'll have um, yeah, and everyone uh, currently in the room. Um, we have tomorrow, uh, we have more guest speakers coming. Um, so tomorrow we have uh, Dr. Um, Detlef Weigel from Germany. He's talking about his uh, more evolutionary biology um, studies um, where he shows that mutations are not random after all and they are quite biased um, which kind of changes or shakes the the theories we have about evolution currently uh, it's a really big deal uh, study so he's here tomorrow 1 p.m. EST and then we have um, uh, let me check the time we have on Thursday at um, at also 1 p.m. EST, Dr. Khalsa, um, he's a colleague of Dr. Olu, um, um, and where he shows that anxiety is associated with autonomic hypersensitivity. So it's also a really, um, he's a really great scientist and um, yeah, he, he will take the time to talk with us. And then Friday, we will have Dr. David, and she did a study where she gave uh, repeated low doses of LSD to healthy adults, and uh, she will share the study results with us. Um, so, yeah, stay tuned. Um, come back, maybe, Sonak, maybe there's some, I think there's some stuff that, is also interesting for you. Um, the cool thing here is that people just get to interact with, uh, you know, with real scientists doing real great, um, interesting work currently. So, yeah, thank you so much, everyone. Um, check out the, the press on the Science Society. Follow so you get alerts when uh, when we have great rooms like these and um, have a good night good morning good day wherever you are around the world and um, see you again soon or hear you again soon <laughs> thank you bye thank you. Bye. bye everyone take care everybody